welcome to the Rejected Religion Podcast. I'm Stephanie Shea. This month's episode is the first in a two-part series about chaos magic. My guest is the wonderful Dr. Christian Greer, who will be talking about the history of modern magical groups and how these earlier groups led to the birth of the chaos magic current. Dr. Christian Greer is a religious studies scholar with a special interest in psychedelic culture. He is currently a postdoctoral fellow and the inaugural cohort of the Transcendence and Transformation Initiative at Harvard Divinity School's Center for the Study of World Religions. His research concerns the complexities, contradictions, and assumptions within post-World War II North American counterculture. Specifically, his research analyzes the interplay between heterodox religious discourses and the birth of quote-unquote hip culture. Christian begins in our discussion by talking about why the topic of magic in all its forms is relevant as an area of study and research. He then gives a brief history of modern and contemporary ritual magic groups and how these, along with other influential movements of the time, informed the major figures associated with chaos magic. We then move the discussion to talk about the larger chaos magic current in more detail. Welcome back to the podcast, Christian. So good to be here, Stephanie. It's lovely to have you here again. You've kindly agreed to return today to talk about chaos magic from an etic academic perspective. So what we'll be getting into is the history of chaos magic where it came from and what it was responding to, and maybe even what it's still responding to today. Uh, This discussion is not going to cover the topic of magic all the way back to antiquity, uh, but with the more modern viewpoints of magic, beginning in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, because a lot was happening then in the realm of the occult, so to speak. However, before we get into all that, I'd like to start with a question that is more on a meta level, That being, why is this topic of chaos magic or ritual magic or just magic in general, for that matter, relevant as an area of study and research? Why should academics pay attention to this topic that is oftentimes just dismissed as being a fantastical indulgence by many in the mainstream public? What are your thoughts on this? Well, Stephanie, first and foremost, thanks for having me back. I thought we had such a great time together. So it's uh, great fun with you. And of our interview, and um, I'm a big fan of the show. So it's really, really my honor. The question's a great one. And it's so good, in fact, whenever I'm asked it, I always respond by saying, what do you think? <laughs> because, you know, I think there are so many good answers to this. However, you really have to begin with um, Alex Owen's The Place of Enchantment. This is a text that came out a few years ago, uh, 2012, I think. Mm -hmm. And this is a historian of cultural history who looks at Britain around the turn of the century. And it's really from that work that historians could recognize just how important esotericism at large, in a loose definition, and occultism in particular, was 
with respect to modernization. Whereas historians have thought of the occult as some sort of weird, creepy sideshow in the project of modernity, what Alex Owen demonstrated very clearly, I think, was just how central the mixing of spirituality and science, the experimentations in metaphysical ideation, how important these esoteric tropes were in the construction of modernity. And, and there's another text that's much shorter, not both book length. It's, it's Marco Passi's The Mardanity of Occultism. Um, these two texts, I, I think, are really the basis upon which any answer to this question could be made. And, and really, in Marco's text, what you get is a very concise, almost bullet point response where he shows you how, for example, esoteric organizations like the Theosophical Society created spaces that were like experimental social laboratories. So, for example, one of, in one of these experimental social laboratories, the Theosophical Society, you had a very unique configuration. That is to say, women were allowed to hold power. Women were allowed to join the Theosophical Society and related metaphysical groups. And within these private, not necessarily secret, but private, Little circles, women could not only attain positions of authority, but also undergo what would be um, a level of education that would, they would be prohibited from having. Uh, they were prohibited from entering into higher education. However, in these occult circles, um, they could not only hold power, but also research, write, and really build careers as thought leaders. So that's one example. But another example, for example, if you look at modern art. Um, recently, there's been a lot of attention around Hilmar Klimt and the work that she produced as a medium. And it's some of this work in, um, um, what is her name? Georgia Harrington is another example um, of these early abstractionists. What really we can link the birth of abstract art to metaphysical milieus in which women played a central role. So these are very liberal forces that we see being channeled through esoteric milieus. But, and it's not just um, women's rights and art. We could look at uh, writing, that is literature. We could look at film. Uh, theater is another example. But across all of the domains that would define modernism, esoteric ideation is the rule and not the exception. Um, and this, of course, can be traced into the avant-garde. And so, really, it's so obvious. And it was one of those things that esotericism, and to answer your question more directly, magic has always been an object of fascination amongst artists and uh, progressive social forces, as well as conservative social forces. So magic remains an object of fascination that continues to turn the dialectic of history. Um, and I should just say, from my own experience, as a historian of esotericism, being keyed into the normal quality of esotericism, or Christopher Partridge has an expression, the a culture is ordinary. Right. So being clued into how ordinary a culture is really gives me a handle when it comes to interpreting the social forces that configure our lives today. For example, I remember when um, there was a sort of conservative wave that was uh, really surrounding Trump and this idea of meme magic. 
that was popular on the alt-right, and particularly around 4chan, um, politically incorrect board. Uh, I remember thinking, oh my God, how would you possibly interpret this if you still adhered to the old paradigm that believed the cultism was marginal? Like, th this was something that was quite popular that you were seeing in the streets with uh, Pepe the Frog and Keke... Pakistan and this whole thing, and right. as the story of a culture, like, oh, another round of magical politics, boy, oh boy. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I, I was really able to interpret it in a way I think my colleagues who are not keyed into the study of esotericism would be more befuddled mm. and surprised. Um, though I should also say we should historicize the belief that magic is irrational and therefore dangerous. Of course, this is a very popular discourse. Uh, this became a very popular discourse after World War II. The belief there being that the madness and violence and destruction wrought by the National Socialists, the Nazis, um, was an exercise in irrationality. This was the danger of irrationality. And so after the war, you had authors like Adorno, um, in his thesis against occultism, really specify that irrationality is dangerous, and, moreover, that the occult is the primary language of the irrational. And so what we had uh, in this analysis is a linking of occultism to fascism and occultism, fascism, violence. Therefore, I think moving forward into the 40s, 50s, and 60s, a lot of social scientists were really wary of recognizing the significance of occultism in, um, in modernity but in fact, we're more predisposed to holding it at arm's length. So why is it important today? Well, because it's all around us. You know, and I think uh, it really is, uh, it should be treated as a significant cultural force. Thank you for sharing, uh, for sharing that and giving that concise um, explanation of uh, what was going on uh, in that time period. And also highlighting the fact that it is everywhere. It doesn't really even matter anymore where you look. It's just everywhere. It's, I'm just, once you, once you know about it, then it's, you see it everywhere. It's, it's, you can't, you can't get around it. <laughs> There's nothing anymore that is not affected by occult uh, ideas, it seems. So, oh, absolutely. And, and it seems very fashionable, too. Okay. I always get a kick out when I'm out, you know, having a drink with friends and I see someone with a jacket with um, like a pentacle on it or a T-shirt with a tarot, uh, yeah. with one of the Weight Rider tarot icons. Yeah. Um, really, it's, it's uh, so ubiquitous. And I find it to be really cool because it's a topic that seems to have allure. There's something mm. magical and mystical and mysterious about these objects. So I think that's one reason why it's so ubiquitous because it's retained some of that excitement of the unknown. And so I think for fashion designers or filmmakers, mm -hmm. this is going to be a obvious inspiration because, you know, under the sign of the occult, you, you can, you can really deal with these uh, really strong emotions, whether it's fear, fear mongering or excitement for the unknown. Mm -hmm. Uh, I get it. I see why people are so enthusiastic about it. And magic plays right into that as well. So, yeah, it's not uh, not surprising in that regard. So thank you no, no. again for, for sharing uh, your views about Absolutely. that. 
One more thing, Stephanie. Sure. I know we got a bunch of questions, but I have to mention. <laughs> you know, there's this like scholarly, um, ongoing argument that it's impossible to define magic without excluding the most obvious forms of it. This is like one of these old uh, kind of secrets among scholars is that uh, do your best to define magic. It's just such a uh, fool's errand. So if you really want to spend a summer reading in circles as scholars go back and forth, let me really recommend following the literature around defining magic. Uh, from uh, Yeah, yeah, it's pretty, pretty great stuff. It seems like that is the um, kind of the problem for for uh, religious studies in general, what is religion? Everybody has mm. their own uh, definition of religion. What is it? Yeah, you can have uh, as many as many ideas and opinions as there are uh, people writing and talking about it. I would think, and magic is probably no different in that matter. Uh, but yeah, that makes uh, that makes for a very interesting uh, d- uh, discourse. I think, though, that uh, everyone has their own ideas about it and can argue those ideas. All right, let's shift gears now to some history, history of magic. That is, I'd like to start with some history of contemporary magical groups, and I'm thinking here of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn the Ordo Templi Orientis, you know, groups like that, along with important figures such as Aleister Crowley. Uh, Could you talk more about this time period and what was happening with regard to magic and more specifically ritual magic? And here then we get into magic with the CK ending because of Crowley's uh, version of uh, magic and sex magic. Yeah. Great question. And, you know, I'm a historian, so I, I got to put dates to this. And good. when we're talking about modern ritual magic, we're really talking about a time, I'm, I'm talking about the origins of modern ritual magic, 1850 to 1900. That is the first block of time where you see some of the most important orders really emerge. And here I'm talking about the Hermetic Brotherhood of Lexer, which was uh, Pascal Beverly Randolph's group. And then the major one, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. And that's associated with um, Samuel Mathers, William Westcott, Arthur Edward Waite, um, these real heavyweight writers on the occult, occult writers. Um, and, and really, it was those two groups that would lay the groundwork for what we know today as the modern magical society. And what we see when we look at those two groups is really the, the most important structures, a lot of them based on Freemasonry, but you're going to see the initiation, the degree structure hierarchy, and schools of magic developing that link performance of certain rituals to results in the real world. Now, it's important to really sketch the background of these magical orders, and that background is going to be the Theosophical Society. So I think you had the Theosophical Society make a splash on a global level, North America, Europe, Asia, really it's a global endeavor. And there's a lot of really fantastic work being done on the globalization of theosophy. Here I'd like to mention my friend um, Ragunko, of course, at the HHP, his work. And his, um, his dissertation is going to be uh, fantastic. It talks about Bengal, theosophists in Bengal. But anyways, with the theosophical enterprise, you had a very ecumenical, spiritual, 
let's say an ecumenical spirituality was really coalescing. However, that also created an interest for people to not just talk intellectually about metaphysics and spirituality. You had people that wanted to do it. You had people that wanted to practice the rites that would give them the power that, according to theosophists, was really something contained in the past. And so you had magical orders formed with the specific intent of performing rituals that would allow them to acquire gnosis, that would allow them to acquire higher knowledge. And depending on the school, magic school that you were a part of, gnosis would be configured differently. So let's just look at the Order of the Golden Dawn, which is you know probably the most recognizable modern magical order. And you had major figures there, like William Butler Yeats, the poet and statesman. Um, and of course you had Aleister Crowley, was another member of the Golden Dawn. And here you can draw a sort of family tree, you know, and, and here's one of the rules about studying modern ritual magical societies. They always schism. Always. There's always going to be a schism. And so this is where the, the sort of family tree of modern ritual magic societies can be drawn. Because from the Golden Dawn and the schisms that really racked it, uh, you had Crowley really develop his own school of magic. Um, this would be Thelema. Mm -hmm. And as he was developing a new school of magic, really based on Thelema, he came up with his own way that that would be practiced, which he coined a term which is scientific illuminism, the aim of religion with the methods of science. Um, and so really, when it comes to looking at modern occultism, Crowley is such an important figure, uh, not only by virtue of the associations he had, but also the orders he founded. So the Lama would be the religion that was revealed to him in 1904 while in Cairo. Um, and from this, or alongside this, he would create his own orders, two of which are pretty important. The first is the AA, Silver Star, um, which, as far as I can tell, and in my conversations with Egil Esperum, who's something of an authority on this, it wasn't so much of a group where people would get together and perform. It was more like a correspondence course that you would take with Crowley. So it seemed to be more individual and something very much tied to Crowley and your relationship to him and the system he had created. The other organization that bears mention with respect to Crowley is the OTO, or Tempus Orientis, which Crowley did not found, incidentally. Uh, it was founded by a trio, triumvirate, in the early 1900s, uh, really under the direction of Theodore Roos, who is a German, uh, something of a Cagliostro figure, um, who was really fascinated with Freemasonry and took that structure and then filled it with his own particular beliefs, uh, specifically those related to sexual magic, those related to performing sort of sexual acts, not solely for the pleasure involved in them, but with the intention of achieving higher knowledge, with the intention of achieving higher insights. And Crowley was, in fact, brought into the OTO um, as its figurehead. And so that, that's, uh, and that society has carried on to the present day. In fact, maybe some of your listeners are part of the OTO or in a city where there is an active lodge. For example, I remember I was vacationing in the Bay Area and I was reading one of those really wonderful uh, street news flyers, you know, about various things going on. And, oh my God, uh, there's an OTO lodge in Berkeley and they're having a Gnostic mass. I got to go check it out. My partner was like, 
I'm not going. I'm like, well, I have to go. I mean, it's, so if you if you check your local street weeklies, you might be able to find a lodge near you and check check in on it. And I have to say, it really is worth it. Uh, being able to visit a Gnostic Mass performed, it's, it's a spectacular event, and I think something that all students of esotericism uh, should should check out if possible. But but you know, moving beyond the OTO, uh, if you look to the 1950s, we're really now talking about. Um, a new branch of uh, magic, which would be the Typhonian strain of the Order Templarianus. This is Kenneth Grant, who was working very much within a Crowleyan framework, but so creative, is so innovative, really taking it in a very different direction. And um, the Typhonian Order, founded in the 50s, um, Kenneth and Steffi Grant, uh, they founded a lodge, the Isis Lodge, and here I have to mention the work of my friend Heinrich Bogdan, who's done some fantastic work on the Typhonian Order. And it was actually last summer in the depth of the pandemic. I was talking to Heinrich and I was like, I want a new project. I want, I want to look into something that's really expansive. And I, I just, I, I'm looking for something new and something fresh to do with all of this kind of downtime I had. And he was like, oh, get into grants. What do you call three trilogies connected? What's a nine book What's a trilogy of nine books called? I don't know. Um, but uh, Don't know. <laughs> no, no, who knows? But uh, his cycles of books, beginning with um, The Magical Revival, uh, Aleister Crowley, and um, Cults of the Shadows. And Kenneth Grant really elaborates such an expansive cosmological worldview that is so creative and so original. Um, I think a lot of people were really influenced by just the sheer courage, intellectual courage and vision of, of Kenneth Grant to really create a new cosmology. And really a lot of the popularization of H.P. Lovecraft mm-hmm. can be traced right back to Kenneth Grant and the way in which Lovecraft featured in his um, Typhonian, Typhonian view. And then, of course, you have other groups like um, Gerald Gardner, an associate of Crowley, who would go on to invent Wicca we go on to invent um, what we would know as the most recognizable form of witchcraft today. Um, you know, Gardner was a self-professed pagan, a self-professed witch. And really the history of modern witchcraft goes right back to, goes right back to him. Um, also you have uh, Anton LaVey's Church of Satan, which I would say is another, which deserves to be included in this sort of family tree. Um, very California. Let me just start by saying the Church of Satan was a very California thing because it was, it presented itself as a secular magical order, secular magical order. So the rites were there. What I like to think of as the smells and bells, the most fun aspect of any magical order, the smells and bells, um, very much in place, though without all of the heavy, dense ideology, if that's the way to put it, or um, particular ritual teachings. Um, Anton LaVey really was into the theater and how theater could be empowering. And I think uh, Anton LaVey, really, if you look into LaVey Satanism, which is not my expertise, but from what I, what I know, it seems to be very much based on uh, sort of might is right, uh, Ayn Rand style self-empowerment, self-improvement. And it wasn't until later with someone like Michael Aquino's Temple of Set that you get a theistic, mm-hmm. satanic magic order where Satan would be looked at as a non-empirical entity that you can make contact. So a slight difference there. 
Um, and it's really from OTO, Golden Dawn, Typhonian Order, and Church of Satan. It's really from these schools that we can really start to see the milieu in which chaos magic would have taken shape. That was uh, very much a formative influence on the progenitors, the creators of chaos magic, which would be um, Peter Carroll and Ray Sherman. Um, really, when it comes to looking at where chaos magic formed and what was the influences, uh, we're looking at um, people who were really steeped in the history of British occult and really attempting to do something new, to absorb the lessons of the past, to learn from the mistakes, and, re- and chart a new course for the history of um, occult philosophy. If I may uh, come back to what you were talking about, Kenneth Grant and the Typhonian uh, tradition, were the entities that Grant uh, was writing about, talking about, were these considered... Uh, quote-unquote real, as the Temple of Set took Satan and made it theistic, and a non-corporal entity that you can actually engage with? Oh, absolutely. Was, was Grant taking the the old ones from Lovecraft and, and purporting them as being real entities that you could oh, yeah. interact with? Yeah, so Kenneth and Steffi Grant were allegedly very much in contact with the old ones, um, and, and not not simply the old ones, but a variety of non-empirical beings. Yeah. And it was from um, their capacity to channel these very atavistic forces um, that they were able to really rewrite the history of magic. Um, they were tapped into something that allowed them to see the way in which what we know as the history of magic is really just the shadow of what was actually happening, which was these cults coming in contact with the entities that Kenneth and Steffi Grant were in contact with. And so historians are only seeing the shells, really. Mm. The, out, the external evidence of an internal history, a process by which uh, various individuals across space and time, going all the way back to the most archaic forms of shamanism, have been in touch with these higher powers in the way that, um, yeah, it shapes the way, it shapes human progress. Another figure that is uh, quite important when you're looking into history of chaos magic is Austin Osmond Spare. And from what I've read and what I know, um, he was associated with Kenneth Grant uh, and Steffi Grant. Could you talk a little bit more about Spare? Yeah, well, here it's important to note that Spare was a close associate, at times associated with Aleister Crowley. Mm -hmm. And Kenneth Grant was Crowley's secretary at the end of Crowley's life. So there is a direct hand-to-hand or heart-to-heart element here that while we might think that occultism is so big and so mass, it's actually much more intimate than I would think and than I would expect. So you have Crowley associating with A.O. Spare, and then once Kenneth Grant... um, is with Crowley at the end of his life, uh, he's very much absorbed a lot of the Crowley's ideas, the Crowley's ideas. And when it comes time for him to create his own, he draws on A.O. Spare 
as an essential link in what Grant would consider to be the magical tradition as it has passed from time immemorial to present. And when we talk about Spare and Chaos Magic, what we're really focusing on is Spare's technique, and that would be sigilization. Sigilization was a technique that Spare introduced in his Book of Pleasures in 1913. And let's go into it. Why not? Because it's going to feature pretty big when we talk about uh, Chaos Chaos Magic itself is one way to define it is a focus on results and to hell with the metaphysics. It's experimental. What what they say, you know, belief is a tool. Adopt the beliefs that work. Adopt the beliefs that let you get what you want. Uh, And so, right. And so how would you get what you want? All right. So you can choose whatever beliefs, but the the techniques you use are not negotiable. One of the main central techniques in chaos magic is sigilization, which spare really perfected. And in a nutshell, it's you have a desire. You wish to possess money. You want, you want some more money, we'll say, okay? So you would take a pen and a piece of paper and you write down what it is you want. Um, you spell it out. I would like, we'll say, $500. And then in this technique, as it was passed down and popularized amongst chaos magicians, is you remove all the vowels from the sentence, which leaves you with uh, a number of consonants. And then you use those consonants to create an emblem. So you could turn the T upside down and connect it to the bottom of the A. And what you would then build would be an emblem of this desire. And the idea is that the universe is far more complicated than we could ever know. And what you do on a small scale will make large-scale things happen. Small little things make big things happen. And if you look through a lot of the chaos literature, you'll see repeated reference to the butterfly effect. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a movie Mm -hmm. about this, too. But the idea being a butterfly flaps its wings in Brazil and creates a hurricane off of the coast of Africa, this idea. But anyways, this was used amongst chaos magicians to say, This process of sigilization, you make a little sigil, and then you have to charge the sigil. Charging a sigil can happen a number of ways. Um, The most important thing is you you attain a state of a static trance. You could do this through hyperventilating, through psychoactive drugs, through alcohol, through drumming, sensory deprivation, self-flagellation, whatever. The idea that you would reach a sort of climax... And that would imprint the sigil in the texture of the chaos. It would imprint it in, your little imprint would cause a big change in the future. And um, the most popular way, though, was autoeroticism. This is uh, because chaos magic is traditionally practiced individually. Uh, You would have individuals engage in uh, onanism or whatever, but self-pleasuring. And then at the height of their climax, their orgasm, they would empower the sigil, they empower the sigil. And then you usually destroy evidence of the sigil after. It's gone. And you're supposed to forget about it. You're supposed to move on. And that practice is called sigilization. It's the most recognizable chaos magic practice. Though there would be many, many more. Um, none would have the same, same I think, popularity as that. Um, and you even, you even see this particular focus on results filtered out of the chaos magic milieu, which we can really date from 1979 
to present. It's still around today, very much so. And we can still see that being used uh, today, for example, with meme magic. Uh, it's often uh, identical. Uh, though I doubt a lot of the people who use meme magic are, are even interested in knowing about the history of where it comes from. It's a very chaos magic approach, actually. I don't give a shit where it's from. It works, so I do it. it it's that, pragma- that pragmatism yeah. that really is so central in, in the chaos magic movie. I can imagine that some listeners who might not um, know this much about uh, about magic and ritual magic, uh, they might be wondering, why is sex so important? Where did this idea come from that, uh, that ritual magic, including sexual uh, components, you know, practices, where did this idea come from? And why was this considered so important? Well, I think that's a really large question. You know, what is the role of sex in not only occultism, but spirituality mm-hmm. and religion? And it seems as though it's integral. It seems as though either prohibition or prohibitions on various sexual behaviors have been integral in almost every spiritual and religious tradition across time and space. Um, whether that be uh, the Catholic Church's insistence on abstinence before marriage and the sacrament of marital bliss. Okay, that's, that's one form of sacred sex. To, uh, well, you name it, really across the board. To um, the insistence that certain um, Buddhist monks remain celibate their entire life. Uh, within the occult, modern occult milieu, I think a nice place to start would be Theodore Roos and his early writings that would become foundational for the OTO. Uh, he has a number of texts on uh, lingam, on yoni, uh, which would be associated with the East and India in particular. But here we have an occultist casting an Orientalist glance at India, seeing India through the spectacles of Orientalism and therefore stereotyping it as the land of ancient wisdom. And what ancient wisdom was Rus interested in? Rus was interested in the wisdom contained in sexuality. And so within his ritual order, he incorporated forms of what you could call Western Tantra into the hierarchical degree structure. And you would not be initiated into these potentially taboo rites until you had achieved a level 
of esoteric knowledge. Um, and you see a uh, very same thing in the life of Aleister Crowley. You see, really, if you look at his career as a magician, some of his most important magic rituals, which are typically called workings, he would refer to different workings, Paris working, the Abramelin working. Um, in his workings, he would utilize Western tantric techniques, what we could call Western tantric, or we just call it Crowleyan magic, uh, techniques that would involve sex with another individual. Uh, in some cases, it was, it was a man, and in some cases, it was a woman, thinking of Victor Neuberg, this very famous working that Aleister Crowley did in the, um, in the desert where he tried to raise uh, the demon Kronzon. But anyways, um, sexual magic has, has really worked its way through modern occultism. And now today, I think it's a rather unremarkable element within it. Um, and alongside sexual magic, particularly in the life of Alistair Crowley, you have the use of psychoactive drugs. Um, for example, mescaline was a popular one. And then there's this persistent anecdote, rumor, I don't know what it is, that it was Alistair Crowley who in fact introduced Aldous Huxley to mescaline decades before Aldous Huxley would write his famous Doors of Perception in 1954. So I think that drugs and sex, all we need is rock and roll, <laughs> perhaps. But uh, as, I, as I said at the opening of the conversation, esotericism and occultism in particular opens up spaces, laboratories of social experimentation where potentially taboo behavior can be pursued and re really explored. And so I think sexuality and sex magic is one of those elements. And I think that the focus on self-sexuality in chaos magic is, is really a development from a longer story that would, um, that would tie very serious meaning to the retention or dispersal of seminal fluids. Um, th and this, this is a big thing in um, actually the Typhonian strain um, of occultism, which is preservation and consumption of menstrual blood. Uh, and because of Kenneth Grant and his particular uh, position in, in, in society, uh, he never comes out and says it. It's part of this interlocking series of ciphers that you have to unbind and, until you finally get to this um, teaching that some of the most serious occult practice involves uh, menstrual blood. And here I'd like to mention the scholarship um, of um, Manon Hedenborg White, who you've had on your show. Yes. yes. Right. And The Eloquent Blood, yes. her book from University of Oxford Press, is fantastic and, and really such a, an exciting read. Um, and just one more little anecdote. My favorite bit of Crowley slash OTO slash interesting sex magic was the Agape Lodge number two. If you know this story, it's very interesting of... Um, Jack Parsons, the rocket scientist from Caltech, shacking up with L. Ron Hubbard, the science fiction writer and creator of Scientology, um, and cultivating their own thelemic scene in Hollywood. And you have the arrival of the Scarlet Woman. Anyways, it's really fantastic. <laughs> Such an exciting episode in the history of occultism because all of these really wild elements come together. It's um, really fascinating stuff. And, and there's a few books on it. Um, Dr. White talks about it as well. There's a book called, I think, Love and Rockets, The yes. uh, Life of Jack Parsons, that, that goes into this, with, 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 which has a really great intro by Robert Anton Wilson, uh, someone who 
is central. In fact, not in chaos magic per se, but in the chaos movement, let's call it, that predated chaos magic. Yes. Well, that's wonderful little segue into another important group that influenced the magical thinking around chaos and how chaos relates to magic, uh, the Discordian Society. You've already talked about the Discordians in an earlier podcast episode, but could you zoom in today on the influence this group had on the way people thought about magic and more specifically chaos magic because Discordians were about the goddess of chaos. Uh, and, and what I'm asking, I guess, is because uh, I'm wondering how all of these earlier groups and all these people and their ideas, how this led to what we now understand as chaos magic. Yeah, and, you know, I'm going to do my best um, not to retread ground we've walked before, right. but Steph, it's so enjoyable talking to you. That it just flows out of me. We really have such a nice rapport, Please so I'll do my best. Though. Feel free, because this okay. might be the first time that's, that people are hearing about this. They might not have heard the other podcasts, so, yeah. you know. I should, I should just preface it by saying, and, you know, if you're interested in this distinction, you can dive into some of my work. It's on academia.edu. And if you look at any of my stuff on Discordianism, I try to make this point. And I think it's a really significant one, which is chaos magic is a strain of the chaos movement that is more or less indigenous to Britain. Um, so it is a ritual magic turn in the larger chaos movement, which would be Anglo-American. So the chaos movement is older and larger than chaos magic. Chaos magic would be a ritual magic version of a longer and older discourse. Now, that longer and older discourse begins, okay, well, we can be as uptight as we want about it. Let's just tell a good story, okay? It begins in 1957 in Whitaker, California, with uh, two high school students, Carrie Thornley and Greg Hill, who, as young, mad magazine-reading adolescents uh, in post-war America, had, you know, very big ideas, and, and as young people, they got together and created their own religion, which was called discordianism. And they thought there was so much chaos in the world. Well, you might as well worship the being that has the most power. And if chaos is everywhere, we should worship chaos. And so uh, thus discordianism was born. It's also known as Eresianism. Uh, and it's based on the worship or let's say the veneration. Worship is a little heavy. Let's say the appreciation of Ares, uh, the Roman Ares, Greek discordia, the goddess of Ares. And, you know, you can pick up your Ovid, you can pick up your Edith Hamilton's mythologies off the shelf and read about Ares. You know, this is a Greek goddess that, that lived uh, and was, uh, you know, recognized amongst Greeks and Romans. But anyways, revitalized by these two young Americans in California. And I won't get into the whole history of discordianism. I'll just say that as these two young men proceeded through life, to ask them about it, they would say the reality of this particular jape, of this particular goof, became more real to them. Uh, particularly Carrie Thornley, who led such an adventurous life. It, it's really just unbelievable if you look at the life of this person and what he experienced and the people he met. Just to give you a, a little tidbit, um, while Carrie Thornley was in the Marines, he was stationed with one Lee Harvey Oswald and was so taken with this interesting fellow, he wrote a book about him called The Peaceful Warrior. And it was only some years later 
that Carrie Thornley saw the name Oswald appear again, this time as the would-be assassin of JFK. Now, that's pretty unusual. Well, the plot gets even weirder when you realize that Carrie Thornley was stationed with Oswald while in the Marines. And then, after he left the service, reunited with his friend Gregory Hill in New Orleans. In the French Quarter of New Orleans, a really hip, happening place, who else was there? Lee Harvey Oswald was also there. The question is, did Thornley hang out with Oswald? Did they know each other? Well, there's a lot of mystery here. And for those who are very keen to know the deep story, I'll recommend Adam Gowrightly's. Uh, he has two books on Carrie Thornley. A Prankster and the Conspiracy is the one I'd recommend because it goes into this very difficult and labyrinthine tale of Carrie Thornley's involvement in the JFK assassination. His involvement was not totally speculative because Jim Garrison, the DA, Louisiana district attorney, would bring Carrie Thornley into his case when he reopened the JFK assassination um, case. Uh, when, when he reopened it, uh, the district attorney would claim that Carrie Thornley was, in fact, a double for Oswald, and that Carrie Thornley was a CIA plant, and that the Discordian Society was, that's right, a deep government op. Wow. How exciting. I don't know if that's true. I highly doubt it. But these two are not the only ones exchanging ideas about chaos and exchanging ideas about the metaphysical reality of chaos, exchanging ideas about, really, when you talk about this cornism, this is more of a vector of exploration where serious consideration was given to the ontological foundation of reality. What is behind all of this? How do things happen? Well, if you believe it's chaos, that opens it up to all sorts of speculation. So wait, there's no God? Well, there is a goddess, but she's really just chaos. So I would hesitate to call them pagans, because modern pagan belief tends to be theistic. Or pantheistic. Worship of Gaia. Whereas the Discordians were always humorous in their beliefs. Humor was an incredibly important aspect of their religion. Um, and when it comes to Discordian humorists, uh, really, I think the most recognizable Discordian, Discordian humorist would be Robert Anton Wilson and Robert Shea. So as Discordian, as these two Discordian, you know, Carrie Thornley and Greg Hill, as they began to disseminate more of their ideas, um, they found themselves in touch with the psychedelic culture. They themselves were psychedelic explorers, so-called psychonauts. They were experimenting with LSD and a number of different uh, psychoactive substances. And by virtue of their investigation of chaos through psychedelics, uh, they found themselves talking to other psychedelic groups. Um, the Neo-American Church, the League of Spiritual Discovery, these would be psychedelic churches that are attempting to pursue some of the same metaphysical forms of speculation. So you have a lot of cross-pollination between discordian groups, occult groups, metaphysical groups, and psychedelic groups. All these are sort of mixing and matching. Well, out of this mixing and matching, you have one of the primary Discordian figureheads emerged, that's Robert Anton Wilson and his collaborator Robert Shea, both of which were editors at the uh, at Playboy magazine. Uh, they, they did not do the famous Playboy letters, they did the um, Ask Playboy Forum, the Playboy Forum, which was more into the politics. Anyways, that's not important. What is important is, together, these two Discordian conspirators wrote what they believed was going to be the Discordian opus, called the Illuminatus Trilogy. Uh, they wrote it as one book, but when they gave it to the publisher, it was over a thousand pages. Dell Press said, not on your life. We are not publishing this. 
Uh, instead, we're going to break it up into three novels. And the Discordian trilogy, as it came to be known, the Illuminatus trilogy, um, was supposed to come out in 1969 at really the peak moment of the psychedelic enthusiasm, we can call it that. Uh, but instead it got held up in publication until 1975. So by the time it came out, the moment had passed. Uh, it actually seemed a little bit out of date, seemed a little bit naive with respect to what the psychedelic revolution would occur, would, would, um, how it would change society, because by 1975 it didn't. Um, but anyways, the Illuminati trilogy, despite never being reviewed in any mass market publication, it became a watershed moment for a lot of occultists. The combination of discordian humor, occult knowledge, political revolutionary ideologies, particularly anarchism, and futurist speculation, I mean, it's a thousand pages of this. It's, it's impossible to resist in a lot of ways. And so the book really did popularize chaos as a touchstone for modern psychedelic occultism. And I consider... Uh, the reason I'm talking about psychedelics so much is it's important to recognize that occult ideas pass through the portal of psychedelic culture. That really you could talk about occultism before and after the popularization of LSD. I really don't think we can talk about a culture today without recognizing the centrality of psychoactive substances. So anyways, um, amongst the groups, amongst the scenes that really absorbed the Illuminatus Trilogy was, really we can make it geographical, Leeds, the UK, and even a shop in Leeds in the UK in the mid-70s, this would be Chris Bray's Sorcerer's Apprentice Occult Bookshop in the mid-70s. This was the node. This was the uh, nucleation point for Chaos Magic. So you had psychedelics, you had political, you, you had um, occultism, you had all these things in the air, really centralized at this one bookshop in, in the UK. And um, it's really here that the story of chaos and magic begins properly um, with these two characters, uh, Peter Carroll and Ray Sherwin. They would frequent Christopher Bray's uh, Source Apprentice. Across the street was a little coffee shop that Bray also owned, and they would meet other occultists. And in here, they would start to talk more, much more serious about what chaos meant, specifically with respect to ritual magic. And so uh, in 1978, Peter Carroll published the first major book of chaos magic, which is Liber Null. And Ray Sherwin, right behind him, uh, published the Book of Results. You can really tell, Book of Results, you can tell the main intellectual thrust right there, which is to hell with all of these outdated, archaic, dusty volumes of theory. It's time for us to practice. And when it comes to understanding chaos magic, I think the two best resources would both be written by Colin Duggan. One is his contribution, Chaos Magic to the Occult World, Christopher Partridge's big anthology. And the other one would be um, Perennial Iconoclasm which appeared in Contemporary Esotericism. And that's a perfect term, perennial iconoclasm. Chaos magic is perennial iconoclasm. What do I mean by that? According to Peter Carroll and Ray Sherwin, ancient wisdom was always in a process of being revealed and then institutionalized and silenced. 
revealed institutionalized. So they are perennial iconoclasts, which is to say esoteric knowledge has to continually be liberated from the ossified structures that would turn it into a church or an order or a school. Continually, I like to think about this as the eternal rebellion. You always need rebels to break the truth free from the structures that would enclose it. So chaos magic was an attempt to liberate the truth from the creaky institutionalization of magical orders that had dominated really from 1900 to present. And you had, with with the punk spirit of the mid-70s, you had these two occult ass-kickers really attempt to change the game. And they did this by saying, yes, we're, we're going to take this idea that chaos is the substratum of the universe, dispel with all of the rules and regulations that have structured ritual societies up to now, and begin anew. And how did they do this? Well, they said, listen, belief is a tool. This was one of the principal Discordian ideas. Um, that uh, you should have ideas, don't let ideas have you. That really, uh, you know, you have a lot of these different techniques that occult, uh, that uh, chaos magic magicians would use. For example, uh, for each day of the week, they would move, a, so the, on Monday, the ring would be on their pinky, and they would be evangelical Christians on Monday. For Tuesday, they would move it to their ring finger, and then they would be Gardnerian pagans. And then you get, and each day of the week, they'd have a different worldview or reality tunnel. And the idea was that you would decondition yourself from any stuck or fixed position on reality to really appreciate just how malleable the cosmos was. The cosmos, it was almost like the cosmos would shape itself according to the perspective that you adopted for that particular day. So um, here I should just say that from these two books, um, you had Carol and Sherwin uh, formed their own order, which was the IOT. And in fact, um, that was announced in the third issue of their Chaos Magic Journal, which is Chaos International. And here I should say that once they launch Chaos Magic and their journal into the world, Chaos Magic becomes more of a space than an actual school. Chaos Magic becomes a space of experimentation because it's so individualistic. It's not based on one belief, it's based on a meta-belief containing all beliefs. And what that means is you have a lot of different people developing a lot of different ideas about what chaos magic could and should be. So in many ways, it was an experimental paradigm for magical efficacy. We don't care what you believe, but how do you get those beliefs to come true? That's the experimental angle that they really focused on. And this broader chaos magic space uh, included, of course, Carol and Sherwin's IOT, which didn't really seem to be a sort of let's meet every week and do rituals together, as it was more of a network of people in touch with one another. Okay. Uh, but alongside them, you had, of course, various Discordian groups, and alongside them, you had the Temple of Psychic Youth, that was Genesis P. Orge's group, um, and alongside them, you had, of course, the OTO, you had Gardnerian Wiccans, so all of this was very much... Um, a, a scene that was coalescing. But within this scene, it was clear that chaos magic was where it was at. It was where all the hipsters were doing. It was so cool, so fresh, so fun, and not tied to all of the, I don't want to say bric-a-brac, but familiar icons and ephemera that go with ritual magic. Uh, so instead of, you know, robes and uh, uh, what do you call the ritual daggers in uh, 
a thing. Oh my God. Yes, exactly. So instead of all of these uh, ritual uh, paraphernalia, the Chaos Magicians were into punk. They wore leather jackets. They had mohawks. They had tattoos. They were artists. They were graffiti artists. They, they were break, uh, break dancers. Uh, they, they were just you know, pursuing punk rock music. So they saw chaos as a wellspring of creativity and any creative object you produce as a form of magic. And one of the key creative processes within this milieu was the creation of fanzines. This was looked at as a magical process of channeling your will into materializing an object in the world that created palpable difference and change. Um, so I've mentioned Chaos International. That was, in many ways, the flagship publication, but far from the only one. Uh, one of my personal favorites was Joe Bricolo's um, Chaos, which was, I mean, if Chaos was rebellious, this was just absolutely feral. Let's put it like that. This was, I like to think of it as a uh, bar brawl in print. Uh, Joe Bracolo had a publish everything policy. So nothing was too outrageous or outlandish. No gossip was too taboo. No claim or accusation was, was marginalized. And, and really reading those, it's more wild than anything on the internet ever. I mean, to- totally, this is where chaos magic lived, if you ask me. But, but that wasn't the only one. You had Stephen Sennett's Knox. Um, and a variety of, of Topi, Temple of Psychic Youth publications that circulated. And of, of course, I would be remiss if I didn't mention one more fanzine, which was Lamp of Thoth, which was Chris Bray's Sorcerer Apprentice fanzine. And of course, fanzines had everything in them, really fantastic art. In fact, some of my favorite art is by um, Julian Vane in Chaos International. It's, it's so raw and punk, but he wasn't the only artist he He's, just, he's one of my favorites and the one I really like to look at. But these magazines are so full of cool collages, uh, sketches, paintings. Just it's, it's really a creative, they're really creative publications. Uh, really exciting stuff. But the most important part was not the art. It was not the editorials. It was not the essays on Osman Spare or Crowley or whoever. Um, it was the classifieds. The classifieds ads is where you learned of the other people producing fanzines because there was no the, the fanzines weren't sold in stores they weren't publicly available you had to send away from it and so what formed was a decentralized net of chaos magicians producing fanzines arguing with each other agreeing with each other that's really and I, I should also mention that it was very 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 dangerous to be an open practicing occultist in the 80s and into the 90s when the satanic panic really reared its ugly head and so fanzines were a safe zone where you could let your freak flag fly. And they did. And, 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 and I'll, I'll stop up here and just say um, just how exciting these publications are, how wild and energetic, but also how extremely difficult they are to find today. This is what's really limited the amount of research on chaos. Mm. It is fanzines were usually produced in a run of 10 maximum 250 copies and they were not meant to be saved. It was raw communication. It was a rebel yell. It was a mode of communication that many people considered to be disposable. And so you didn't have, you know, libraries didn't collect them. Universities didn't archive them. And so uh, as a scholar of chaos magic, it's really been, you know, it's a part-time job for me to make connections within this milieu to try to find some of the aging members of this scene Mm -hmm. 
and to, to ask if they have any archives and to get those archives to a university library or, or just PDF'd online. Right. But uh, because of the stuff being shared, they're often very hesitant to do so. Mm. It was very intimate stuff. And they never thought, ever thought, that a scholar would come knocking on their door asking to pry into their private conversations. I mean, how would you feel if a scholar asked you 20 years from now, look at your Facebook messages or your text messages? You know, there is a fine line there. And I try to be respectful. Yeah, right. Understandable. It's so important. It's a, an important aspect of this whole scene, but at the same time, yeah, you we are talking about real, real people with real lives, and uh, yeah, that that is kind of a fine line that you're walking there. So I I can appreciate that. I'd like to go back to what you mentioned before about the argument that uh, Colin Duggan makes about perennialism and iconoclasm and how these two principles seem to be in opposition to each other, but also working together in, in some ways that the idea of a perennial wisdom or a perennial tradition is uh, invoked, but not in a tra- not in the quote unquote traditional way. It's invoked as innovative. That this new thing that has come along is the tradition. So each innovative new thing is a part of this perennial tradition. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, exactly. Okay. It's a perennialist view, which is the idea that sacred wisdom exists in every manner possible, each being an expression of a core truth. However, that's perennialism. Mm -hmm. Chiasm magicians are perennial iconoclasts, which is to say, yes, 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 the sacred core truth exists in all the traditions. However, it must be liberated by iconoclasm. It must be liberated from hierarchy. It must be liberated from all of these institutional mechanisms that would keep us out and let the older people retain power. A very punk move. And this is what's so cool about the IOT. Talk about ritual innovation. When it came to designing the, the hierarchical structure of the, um, the IOT, this would be the central um, gas magic group founded by Carolyn Sherwin. When it came to organizing that, I thought it was so cool. They have um, the central, uh, so you join and there's no hierarchy because they believe that hierarchy will only prohibit the new liberation of knowledge. So, however, there is um, structure. Uh, people have been there longer. There is a little bit of placement when it comes to organizing events and that type of thing. But this is how careful they were. Granted, there was a sort of seniority structure based on how long you were there, but it wasn't hierarchical. Uh, the last person to join, automatically became the second most powerful person. They were known as the insubordinate. Because if you just joined, you had no investment in the group. You had no investment in these power struggles. You would occupy the veto position right next to the oldest member because that would allow for the fresh infusion of new ideas and creativity. I think that is so cool. I think that is such a remarkably innovative shift in what was, if we look at the tradition of ritual magic groups, rigidly hierarchical. Um, and, in, and in many ways, um, based on an authoritarian power structure. Mm. This is very much an anarchistic response to that. 
With that in mind, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why shamanism is important to chaos magicians, some chaos magicians. Yeah, well, this is really cool. Uh, as I said, uh, I'm a historian, and, and a lot of times that really means just sort of getting into the nitty-gritty of publishing, seeing what was published where and collecting documents and comparing first edition, second Okay. If you look at Peter Carroll's early work, like Lieber Null, and even, even the reprint, the, the beautiful Weisner reprint of Lieber Null and Cycle, uh, it opens with this marvelous chart. On the bottom of the chart, I have it here, it says, let me think, get this right, diagram one, okay? Uh, all you in radio land can't see this. I'm showing it to Stephanie here. And it says, the survival of the magical tradition, and it begins with shaman. And it ends, surprise, surprise, with the IOT. <laughs> um, the Illuminates of Thanateros. Um, the idea here is drawn directly from religious studies, particularly Marcella Iliada's book, Shamanism, Archaic Techniques of Ecstasy. The belief being that shamans were the original iconoclasts. They were not beholden to any church. They were technicians of the sacred freestyle spiritualists who took anything at hand and used it to attain higher knowledge. Now, this is not a technical <laughs> interpretation. This is, in many ways, a confabulation yeah. that was very popular, not only with chaos magicians, but um, some of the influences they were drawing from. Uh, Discordians certainly held this view, but I think you know they had this sort of idealized view of the shaman, which was sort of a universal archetype in their mind, which does not seem to be the case. Shamans are a particular ritual technician from Siberia, you know, with a history right. of anthropology. Anyways, um, a, key, a key informant here would be Carlos Castaneda. The Don Juan books that came out in the 70s and 80s were very popular, and they they really mainstreamed this idea of a wonder worker, a shaman, who could use his own, his or her own wits and intuition um, to access the mysteries, and particularly uh, through the use of power plants, through the use of mescaline and other psychoactive substances. And, and I think that really, um, really influenced the way in which chaos magicians idolized the shamans and saw themselves as shamans. One of the most, um, one of the more enjoyable chaos magician authors to read, Phil Hine, has a very popular series called Urban Shamanism. And it was a primer on chaos magic, which is, okay, you live in the concrete jungle. And much like the archaic shamans in the Amazonian jungle, you have to work your way through a confusing and dangerous world taking and using whatever ritual components you can get to hand so that you can perform magical actions, whether that's um, precognition, whether it is sorcery, whether it is love magic or cursing or whatever. Uh, you are the urban shop. And um, that was the model that was used. Um, I also, I just, I just want to mention that I'm continually learning more about chaos magic. Like every time I think I've gotten a handle on it, I'll discover a new vector that informs my view of it. And, and one of the more recent ones is Michael Moorcock, who is really such a cool character, uh, 
science fiction writer, poet, very close to um, Hawkwind. He was a creative, a British creative. But the emblem of Chaos Magic, it's called the Chaos Star. And it is, you might have seen it, it's a dot with arrows emerging mm-hmm. out of every corner. And uh, even the dot around which the arrows is an arrow pointed towards you. But this is to say that, uh, yeah, we don't need to do an iconographic interpretation of it, but um, this was borrowed from Michael Moorcock's writings and fiction, um, particularly the Cornelius Quartet and his, um, his fantasy writings. Um, but anyways, he was very much talking about chaos and chaos as a medical physical force in his fiction, and one of the key components of chaos magic is using fiction as just another belief system, equivalent to Catholicism, equivalent to Chan Buddhism. All ideas exist as possible toolboxes for you to express your magical will. And so this is how um, fiction became spiritualized, uh, and, and particularly the fiction of H.P. Lovecraft. His really above almost all else. Uh, chaos magicians love dabbling with the old ones. And, and, and uh, th- that goes right back to Kenneth Grant. Kenneth Grant was the one to really put H.P. Lovecraft on the map. And um, if I'm not mistaken, had a really cool interpretation, which y- you may know, which is as is evident, Lovecraft himself was something of a materialist, atheist, um, who thought a lot of the theosophical stuff was just rubbish. And then, this is really interesting, (laughs) Kenneth Grant says, of course, the old ones had to choose somebody so shielded from these truths, and only a figure like Lovecraft, who was so deaf to it, could be our channel, because he wouldn't go mad. Uh, Such an interesting idea. And so he became the conduit, the unsuspecting conduit. Um, It also makes me think of uh, contemporary artists and uh, storytellers such as um, Grant Morrison, who uh, I can't remember what series it was that he, I can't remember the name or the specific uh, series it was that he claimed that was a hyper sigil. Oh yes. Uh, the Invisibles. The, the Invisibles, uh, the Invisibles which is really uh, in many ways, I think it could be considered to be the visual or the, 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 I don't want to say comic here because it's more than a comic, and I don't want to say graphic novel, but I want to say the uh, visual art mm-hmm. opus of this entire scene. Not simply chaos magic, but also Discordianism, also Topi, also Michael Moorcock. All of this expansive scene uh, was filtered through Grant's, um, Grant Morrison's energized imagination. And I think to create one of the more potent texts, one of the most impotent cultural texts of uh, the last few decades. Um, and also here, if you want to see, I think, the most lively discourse on sigilization, there is a lecture that Grant Morrison gave at DisinfoCon. It's legendary. Uh, I'd recommend it to you and all of your listeners uh, you are going to see a madman take the stage. And this is someone who you can see the Shakti just coming off of him. And this is a creative person who tapped into what looks to be the power of chaos. And he's up there uh, really acting, quote, unquote, shamanically. 
And he gives a very long and I think very impassioned explanation of what sigil magic is and how to do it. I'll be sure to include that in the program notes so people can head on over to YouTube and watch that for themselves. I have seen bits and pieces of what you're talking about. I have not seen the whole thing myself. Uh, but yeah, very uh, intense uh, talk that he's <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> giving there. Um, lastly, uh, as you are aware, my intention uh, for part two of this episode is to speak with a German uh, magician, chaos magician, although I I hesitate saying chaos magician because as far as I understand, he has kind of moved away from it. Um, but as he was quite involved in the um, Illuminatos, uh, sorry, Illuminates of Thernatos uh, from a German uh, perspective, this man's name is Ralph Techmeyer. He was also known as Frater VD or UD. Someone, a colleague of mine in my network, has uh, interviewed uh, Ralph Techmeyer uh, for uh, German uh, university students and shared that with me and was wondering whether or not I would be interested in speaking with uh, Mr. Techmeyer. And I thought this might be a nice way to combine an etic uh, discussion as we are doing now with an emic or an insider discussion uh, with a live living uh, magician uh, and to ask, uh, ask Mr. Techmeyer about his, his own experiences with chaos magic and other forms of magic. So I'm, I'm looking forward to to speaking with him uh, in that regard. But I'd like to know if you have any questions that you would like to ask uh, Mr. Techmeyer that I can include in my list. Yeah. And, you know, um, I appreciate that. I really do. Because, as I said, um, having devoted, a, you know, <laughs> almost 10 years to studying this stuff, uh, all I know now is that I don't know much. You know, I'm, I'm only discovering how little I know. and um, I'm in the same boat as you. <laughs> it's a great boat, too, let me tell you. Really, it's sunny on the, you know, it's great. But uh, let me say, what's always fascinated me is chaos magic zines were very much a cottage industry. They're usually produced by one person sent out to a network of 10 to 100, you know, very small scale. That wasn't the case with Chaos International. Chaos International as the name suggests, was international. Mm. And that, that's not just hokum. Because what's really interesting to me is, from the earliest issues on, there are full articles and reviews in German for what was ostensibly a UK-based movement. And so I would be curious to, to learn how early he became involved in this particularly Anglo tradition. And... Um, was it only Germany, or were there um, Confederates in Switzerland, or the Netherlands? Or I, I want to know how international Chaos International was, and how international. Um, I, I know that by the time he joined the IOT, had more or less dissolved into something else. So I'm curious just to see how international it was, because a history of Chaos Magic in Germany would be so welcome 
So interesting because I know that there are historians working on chaos magic in Brazil, uh, which is I'm, I'm really interested in, in learning about that. And um, I just think that would be fascinating. I, I think any ways that we can have a global history of this stuff would really shine considerable light on its dimensions and, and its impact culturally. So, Stefan, I want to thank you once again for, uh, for offering. That's really kind. Well, thank you for for agreeing to to talk with me about uh, about chaos magic. Uh, I really enjoy speaking with you. It about anything. It really. Oh, but, it's mutual. But, it's mutual, Stephanie. But I really like the way that you actually tell a story, and it helps me to really understand concepts much much more easily than. Than if I was just reading a you know an article, or you know not not that articles aren't good. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I like articles. I read lots of articles and books, but it's nice to have that you know that engagement with with a you know a live person you know that you can talk to and, and have oh, wow. a you know have a laugh with as well. So oh, thanks um, a lot, well, Stephanie. This is with your permission. Could I puff my own uh, seminar? The visions yes, of the occult. Would that, be, would that be allowed before we sign off here? Uh, I should sure. say that, um, yeah, one of my deep passions is teaching the history of esotericism. And as a scholar who, you know, did his master's degree at the University of Amsterdam in the study of esotericism and then went back and did a PhD in the study of esotericism, um, not necessarily the most stable career. <laughs> but certainly an enjoyable one. I should say that at this point, it is my distinct honor to be offering each summer and each winter a intensive seminar in association with the scholars at the University of Amsterdam and the History of Hermetic Philosophy Department. Uh, that's Marco Passi, Walter Hennegraaff, Peter Forshaw, Dylan Burns, Lionel Seif, the world experts in the study of esotericism. Uh, together, we offer an intensive. In the winter, it's called Visions of the Occult, and that's a basic introduction. That is, if you're just learning, just getting into it, and you want to take a deep dive, um, let me recommend you to check out Visions of the Occult. And in the summer, we host an in-person, Visions of the Occult online. In the summer, we host an in-person intensive, which is three weeks, called Arcane Worlds. And um, we really take students by the hand and if I may, initiate them into the lar large and long history of esoteric ideas from antiquity to present. And so um, it's really something I'm very passionate about and something I'm very proud of. And I, uh, I just love to spread the word about it because it's really such an exciting venture. You should be proud. It's a quite successful uh, program of the university. I have some inside knowledge about that, about all you know, all the people who are uh, applying for this, and it's one of the the uh, most popular uh, programs, as far as I understand, with regard to uh, applications. And uh, and from what I hear, of course, afterwards, that you know everyone is incredibly enthusiastic about uh, about learning with the fabulous group of instructors. So uh, yes. Aww. Yes, you all are, are just wonderful, wonderful people. So, yes, that is coming up in uh, July. And when is the deadline? 
for applications? Ooh, we have a we have a few months. We have right. a few months. Okay. So this, no rush. Of course, this information of will all be made available, and I will ma- make links to everything to websites. And so, if if people are interested in this, and for for the summer school, this is meant more for uh, students, correct? It's not just open to anyone, or is it? Meant more it's for... open to anyone. Okay. Um, however, unlike the winter, which is for everybody, young and old, students, non-students, the summer program is for those with a solid understanding of the basic outlines. So it's more of an advanced seminar. I see. But uh, we welcome applications for both. All right. Wonderful. Well, Christian, thank you again for joining me today to talk with me uh, and and share your your knowledge about chaos magic, about ritual magic. I hope uh, that that, uh, the listeners out there will have enjoyed it as much as I have enjoyed it. And um, yeah, I, I, I hope that we can continue this type of interaction with each other in future episodes. If, uh, if, if that is, uh, suitable to you and uh and, oh, you, and you feel uh i'm at your beck and call anytime <laughs> you, you know you know i love doing this it's so fun with you we have such a good rapport so whenever you'll have me back count oh, me in i love i love speaking with you it's always a pleasure to talk with you and i really appreciate your your endorsement and your support that's <laughs> that means that means a lot to me wonderful I hope you've enjoyed this first etic part of a two-part series about chaos magic. My thanks again to Christian for his wonderful discussion. As I mentioned in the episode, part two will be an emic interview with Ralph Techmeyer, who will give us an insider perspective of his experiences with chaos magic. However, this second part will be coming a bit later in May and not next month. April's episode will be with Dr. Dylan Burns from the University of Amsterdam about Gnosticism. Lots of good stuff to come and thank you for your patience. Please check out the program notes for all of the links. And if you have a moment, leave me a comment on social media and let me know what you think. Or if you feel really generous, leave a review of the podcast and share it with others. I'd really appreciate it. That's all for now. As always, thanks for listening.